Creative company is so delicious, and the creative process is one of my favorite subjects. How humans can create something out of nothing is wildly exciting to me. And one of the best ways I love to spend my time is writing and recording my songs. It's the mid-90s. I'm listening to Gary Burton's reunion album, James Taylor's Never Die Young, and New Moonshine, Eric Clapton's Journeyman, Pat Metheny's Letter From Home, and I'm thinking, there's something amazing about all these albums. There's like a sound I'm recognizing. I look on the credits. They're all recorded by either James Farber or Rob Eaton at the power station in New York City. I'm like, oh my God, I'm hearing the room. Absolutely fantastic. Now, Rob Eaton has got a ton of credits because he was the chief engineer at the power station and did tons of Pat Metheny albums. Hello, sir. How are you? How are you doing today? I am doing great. It's so cool to see you. <laughs> you as well. I am so excited. I mean, I started writing to you in 2019. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, I just looked back to some of those emails and you were so kind to reply. And, and this is so cool of you to jump on this because I have so many questions and I just think your work is so amazing. Well, shoot, shoot. Give me whatever questions you got. I'll see if I can answer them in an intelligent <laughs> format. Well, you were the chief engineer, the chief recording engineer at the power station. How did that even happen? Where did this all start? I mean, I, I moved to New York City on my 19th birthday with no job. And uh, I just fought my way, started working with Tony May. I never I never had to be a like a uh, one of those guys that watches the phones and makes the coffee and works in the tape lab. I was always the... I wasn't. I had one week to learn how to basically run a studio. This was. It was before I was at Power Station. It was a place called Generation Sound, and I worked for a jazz engineer named Tony May. So wow. we were doing records like, you know, uh, Char Charlie Hayden and uh, you know Anthony Braxton and the Heath Brothers wow. and uh, the, all sorts of you know those sort of three day jazz records you would do. Well, were you playing with your own recording gear and microphones before that? How did you even? No, I mean, I, I mean, I was back in Vermont. I grew up in Vermont, so I grew up in very a small little town. You know, I would modify stuff at home and do things like that to record, and you know. But for me, it was getting into the studios, and and within three years, shit, maybe even less than that, I was at Power Station. <laughs> And I was the first person hired that wasn't hired as a as an intern. I was hired as an assistant when I first started. That's awesome. Kind of pissed off some of the interns because everybody came up from the bottom. So like, they needed someone that could step right in. So yeah, but you, you know, setting up mics and knowing on understanding about re uh, acoustics was it the other studio that taught you some of those things? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, working those, you know. The old school jazz records were done in three days. So you'd throw some mics up and and 16 tracks, sometimes 24 tracks, and you'd mix it in a day. <laughs> you'd record it in two days and mix it in one day. Catch what and you got. <laughs> well played. It wasn't any overdub. So it's kind of once you once you got the band's balance, you just kind of let it go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it all oh. changed. The power station had all changed. I was quick, I was smart. I guess that's pretty much how it happened. I didn't become an engineer till I think it was 80, late 83, early 84. I was working on uh, with Jan Eric Kongshaug from ECM on Pat Metheny's first Circle record. Wow. 
Pat wasn't thrilled with the mixes after Jan had gone back to Holland, I think it was, or Sweden or Norway, anyway, one of those places. Hmm. And he asked a couple of the other staff engineers at the time at Power Station to see if to try to remix it, and he wasn't happy with those. So then he asked me if I wanted to give it a shot, and <laughs> I, I never stopped working for him after that. So yeah, I mean, after that started. You have like three Grammys or more. They're all with Pat. They're all with Pat. Yep. That is every, phenomenal. We did every group record from First Circle on. Yeah. Manfred Eicher refused to put my name on the record because of or mixing it anyway, because he was didn't want to upset Jan Eric. It's all politics, bullshit politics. Oh, you know, last record for ECM that Pat did, by the way. So it really didn't matter. <laughs> I know Pat knows I did it. So it was all it was all mood at that point. And is that a backdrop picture behind you right now? Because those backdrop Grammys picture. look massive. Yeah. <laughs> my three Grammys that are just backdrop. I know they're he- I know they're heavy, but I didn't think they were that big when I held it. <laughs> they're, a lot, they're a lot heavier than you think. They're yeah, they're big. like five pounds. They're a lot heavier than you think. Yeah, it's like whoa. <laughs> they make good bookends. <laughs> I have a couple from a 3D printer that I got <laughs> off of Etsy, just to keep my spirits up. <laughs> but when did it cross over were you always on tape before you left power station or did it get to adats or or da 88s it was it was it started on tape first and then we we were kind of the first ones to get into the digital world um gus skinnis who was a friend of mine at sony was one of the one of the guys that sort of started the digital and so he would bring over you know some of the early digital machines you know the 3324 i think was one of one of the first well the the 3m was the first one but those were pretty much and and dinosaurs by you know the mid 80s anyway right but we were trying to experiment with high bit stuff so we were we gus modified a a 3324 and took made it a 16 track and put the extra eight bits on the the other tracks so It was a 24-bit machine instead of a 16-bit machine. So we were nice. one of the first ones of those, which was kind of fun. I mean, editing digital tape and editing analog tape were two different things, and I was good at both. It was tricky to, to, to you know, to cut, you know, 33 48s where you have 48 tracks and digital editing is a whole, you know, with tape, with, with I'm talking about with a razor blade, not with, you Yes, know. yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the lost art form, as I like to call it. That I've never done. Oh, I, I mean, I've, I've spliced on leader and 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 uh, you know tail, but I, I've never uh, like a serious edit on tape of uh, in the middle of music on a beat trying to. Well, that's how I had to do it back back in the analog days before computers. You know, so yep. no yes, cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Susie Hollander? Susie Hollander, the name's familiar. She was uh, assisting and and. Uh, Probably one of the interns. Yeah, my years in the nineties, I think. Bill Shenneman left us to go work at Berkeley or teach at Berkeley, I believe. Bill was at the power station. Bill was at the power station. Yeah, he was a staff engineer at power station before he. Wow. I knew Bill just a little bit. He had the greatest John Lennon story. Oh, we, <laughs> he's got plenty of stories. None that I'm going to share with you on this Zoom cast, but. Why not? <laughs> some, are, some are not meant to be spoken of. <laughs> <laughs> what about Dave O'Donnell? Did you Dave try? Probably, he was one of my assistants for years. He was a I was great say, guy. Did, did you train awesome. him? Yeah. 
Yep. Tamed him. He was he was an awesome cat. Yeah, still is. Still yeah. is. Wow. So he's one of the, you know, you know, we I tried to, to treat my assistants like people. <laughs> I hated it when, when when I was an assistant and someone would just treat me like a piece of shit. Yeah. And and I and I learned one day I was working with gosh, who was this? I forget the guy's name, but I, I saw he was about he was just treating me like crap for days. I saw he was about to record over the vocal comp track. This is an analog days before it was, you know, anything's backed up. Now I had an option of do I tell him? <laughs> do I let him <laughs> I finally told him, but it was I almost let him just do it just because he was such a dick. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided not to be that guy so that my, my assistants would actually help me. And they had good ideas. Sometimes they would have ideas that I didn't think of. And, you know, you can learn from anybody. You, you, yeah. You don't, you know, just because I'm in the in the big chair doesn't mean that some some guy behind me doesn't know something I don't. So I was always open to hearing suggestions and ideas and techniques and things like that. So that's how you learn. And you knew James Farber, right? James Farber, sure. Now, did you train him or did he train you? We were both engineers on staff, so we didn't train each other. We were just, we were both, you know, Power Station had five, about five or six staff engineers and about eight or 10 assistants that were on staff. And then some interns on top of that. I mean, it was 24 hours a day, three studios. I mean, as you know, the Berkeley, I mean, you've got all, we built a fourth one towards the end before I went independent. We called it Studio D. <laughs> it's kind of dumb because it was just a mixing room with like a gigantic SSL and just didn't make any sense. Wow. Have uh, you visited? The only way to make an SSL sound good is to is to bypass it. I was down in the Bahamas mixing the Jimmy Buffett record and I can't couldn't stand the sound of the old, you know, the old E consoles. They were just terrible sounding. So hmm. I found a way to, to I bought in all this gear from Miami, brought in tube gear, tube EQs, tube, tube compressors. And it went directly out of the tape machine into whatever I wanted, and then into the insert return of the SSL. It gave me five dB more headroom, opened up the whole sound. I got still got the aux sends, the pan pots, and the faders, which is all I needed at that point. After that, because everything else was behind me, but the sound of the console just changed dramatically. Oh, that's fantastic! Yep. Insert what were some of? It just bypassed all the top stuff. Just bypassed all the all the crap. Yeah. <laughs> What, what was what was some of the outboard? Oh, it was all you know, summits and Poltex and Manleys and just anything. I'm a tube guy, so anything that had tubes in it was was good for me. Yeah. Do you own a bunch of your own equipment or just bounce around and use others? I do. I've you know, well, I mean, of course, now that we're all on computers, all my plugins are tube emulated stuff and, and mm. regime emulated stuff, so I can change the bias and I can, you know over bias you know do the things we used to do in analog tape back in the day you can really get in there and make it sound good you can change it yeah you can definitely change the you know tonal frequencies without actually doing a whole lot with you know half of half of mixing is how it's recorded people think oh i just gotta absolutely tape, you know but it's not that way at all it's you know if you don't get it if you don't get it to tape right then we call it fixing it in the mix instead yeah. of taking it further in the mix and i try to all the kids that I still work, you know, when I'm in a studio recording, I try to try to teach them that. It's not just making sure that it's on tape. It's getting it on tape to a place where you can then take it somewhere else. Yeah. Were you doing uh, a lot of those 
pre-thinking of tape, recording things extra bright in those days? And did you no. have consciously effort to tape it back? Well, I mean, <laughs> we all got into our little fa fa fads. I think uh, Mutt Lang was probably the one that taught us, you know, you know, you take the Dolby A cards and you encode it. You know, you put all the vocals through it and you encode it and you don't decode it. And that sort of, you know, <laughs> yeah. They're just shimmer your brightness. I mean, the Apex Oral Exciter was at 1.425K, I think is what it's, it's, yeah. it's boosting or something like that. <laughs> Stupid things. You know, you get, we got, we got into making 500 microphones to a drum set now, you know, <laughs> four, I'm happy. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, definitely. Phase everything. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, phase is one of the things that I learned that that's the, probably the most, one of the most important things that people don't think about is phase. And the more okay. microphones you have, especially on a drum kit, the more the more phase. EQ, just EQing something is phase shift. So yeah, yeah. I did a record with Peter Wolf where I refused to use any EQ or compressors or effects, and I just did mic placement. And I only had I think on Sean Pelton I had three mics on him. Put the drums in mono, straight in the middle. Everything was recorded in mono, so I could spread them all around. And the image was great because it's all about the center point. That's so mm. you know, that that point back there that's important. You know, this left right thing's fine, but it's it's the depth that it's the depth that makes it that Z axis, whatever that is in the back. All right. That's what makes that's what that's what get, that's what pulls you in and sucks you in. And that's where the power is. It's where it's it's where the yeah I don't know it's hard to describe. It's one of those <laughs> esoteric things that. I always try to shoot for it to try to get the depth in. Depth comes from the middle. Like I see people recording everything in like guitars and stereo and keyboards and stereo and everything in the stereo and they're panning it left, right, left, right. That's just glorified mono. That's not that's not gonna help you very much. It's not gonna give you dimension. Hmm. You know, you need, in my opinion, it's one of my one of my pet peeves with people. <laughs> Everything's left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. In one of the emails we were conversing, you were telling me you were trying to pass on a lot of these cool things to your son, and he was learning. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the things that people are surprised about that that have nothing to do with any of the training that's on YouTube for free? Well, yeah, you know, I've never watched any of the training that's on YouTube for free, but I would say that, you know, music's all emotion. So, you know, if, if you're not digging it and you're not getting it, no one else is going to do it or get it. So it's, you know, it's... It's it's an odd thing, you know. It's 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 you know. I don't really know. I have a very sensitive ear. I've been had motion sickness since I was a little kid. You know, I get seasick. It's it's just one of those things. I hear shit. I can tune out. I can hear a mix, and I can tune out every instrument and focus just on one particular instrument in there and hear it clearly and everything that it's doing. Which is kind of an odd thing. I can just I can sort of pull away all the other all the other things in the mix which is kind of why pat kept me around for so long because when you have 100 tracks and you're trying to stick them all down to two it's not that easy no <laughs> so. I, I don't think i would call that an odd thing i think i would call that a superpower <laughs> because the the ability to focus is is tremendous even just as a human being on the planet because Whatever you're focusing on, you're giving your attention to. Whatever you're giving your attention to creates momentum. Whatever's creating momentum is where your energy is going. And if you're, you know, thinking and talking stupid to yourself, you're down in the tubes. Right. Well, <laughs> and you're not finding any solutions because you're you just making your problem bigger. If you have to think, you've already lost the game. 
<laughs> but I'm I'm so happy to hear you talk about the feeling of everything because I feel like with colleges and curriculum and things, nobody can charge you for feelings. Nobody can charge you for energy. And that's the most important part of everything that we're doing. It, it can only charge you for information. And even if you're excited and sharing the information, students are thinking they're not getting anything and they don't, they don't understand where the importance is that the magic is in the details and why you have goosebumps. And we don't have to explain why we just have to figure out how to give you more of them so that you can do it on purpose. It's, you know, it's like, you got to get yourself off before you get anybody else off. That's going to, yeah. Yeah. And, and the Beatles always said that. And Pat has always said that. And it's always about feeling something. And there are enough billions of people in the world that somebody else is bound to feel it if you do but you can't put something confidently in the world if you're not feeling it no 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 not at all and that's it goes for live music as well whether it's you're putting it yeah. on or you're playing on stage if you're not if you're not free if you don't feel it you can't expect anybody else to and your intention and all the love you put into it or whether or not you're you're there i mean you can just tell when someone's singing a song if they leave the building <laughs> you know they're just like they're thinking about lunch you know you're like you started the song good but you left you know well it's a odd thing because as being a performer now the good times for me is when i don't even i don't even know there's people there like i'm so inside of the music that i don't no idea that i'm playing in front of people i'll i'll all of a sudden look out and go oh wow there's people there because i'm deeply inside of whatever it is musically that's going on and so it's not sort of turn off the performance hat and you know it's more into the music part of it than i am into the performing part of it you're feeling it so fully that you're just in it yeah i'm just in it and i have no idea there's people there that's that's, (laughs) that's when it's fun for me you know a lot of the sensitive things you were mentioning i also have and yet sometimes it's the bright lights on stage and the overwhelming volume of stage volume sometimes none of that throws you off you're okay with the performing side of it funny because my my lighting director will ask me he goes how are the lights i'm like i have no idea what lights (laughs) well you know that's good because if it's not distracting me yeah what they're supposed to be doing then i suppose (laughs) probably what you know then it's probably good (laughs) But, you know, the uh, an audiologist told me that there's only one section in the brain that does all the senses. So if you are a trained musician, as we are, you're, all your senses are heightened. And that's why you're so sensitive. And really, those are your your superpowers. You know, uh, if something's too bright, all of a sudden you can't hear. If something is too loud, all of a sudden you can't see. It, it makes sense to her. But I had never heard that before, and I just thought, oh, my God, I could tip over sometimes. I have those nights where, it's, where I can't get my tone right mm. for no reason, and I'll fiddle all. And as an engineer, it's kind of like a Kurt gun. It's like the kiss of death because – Me too. I feel like I should be able to fix this. And I spend all night long you know, just tweaking and tweaking and tweaking. Nothing seems to work. The next day, I'll just plug it in, play. It's fine. Is there <laughs> no particular reason? Well, sometimes it's like I feel like I can't play if the sound is right, not right. You so know, I feel like I've never played the guitar at all. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you put it in your lap and you go, What is this thing? I've never seen it before. I've been playing over 50 years, you know. It's just one, it's just, <laughs> I just pump it up to life in general. Yeah, yeah, it's just that human craziness. <laughs> what what happened then after the 
those digital machines that you said ADATs, did they ever go to DA88? Everyone to ADAT. It, I did one record on ADAT, I think, with Jimmy Buffett, but you know, ADATs are fucking pain in the ass. It was. Oh, I know. I had four of them. I still have six somewhere in storage, but <laughs> I have one over there. That one's enough. Um, Just to try to, you know, remember dump things into, you know, into logic once in a while if I need to go back to anything. It's uh, it was a shitty format, you know, kind of like CDs are shitty format, you know, just terrible. Yeah. I never MP3s. I've never, I never listened to MP3s ever. I, I don't have a big CD collection because I couldn't stand the sound of, you know. Wow. It's, here's a here's an interesting story. I was when I the first Lyle May solo record I did. I can't remember the name of it. It was early. Yeah. Di- it was done on a sixteen ten, <laughs> the old big sixteen tens, and I had the Umatics, the big Umatic tapes, where it was recorded on. Yeah, that we used to master on. Right, Bob Ludwig had, you know, the first digital sort of mastering board. So we went in there and mastered it. Years later, and of course, I mixed it to half inch two track as well, just because you do, that's what you do. Years later, we remastered it and with Ted Jensen and had both formats in the analog, even though it had noise like analog tape does, just blew out of the water the digital. And we were so infatuated with the fact that there was no noise, I think, that we lost track of the fact that all this other music and stuff was in the analog. And we were just so enamored with the fact that, look here, there's no hiss. We don't hear any tape hiss. But there was no magic either. (laughs) There's all sorts of other things going on. So we remapped it with the analog. And it's much better. Noisier, but better. And now are you on Pro Tools all the rest of these years? Yeah. When I went down to Florida to work with Ricky Martin on his second record, all the guys from Full Sail, you know, they were computer, you know, really good with computers, but I have no idea about miking or anything like that. So Mm. I was kind of brought down to help teach them. And they taught me Pro Tools and I taught them a little bit what I knew about, you know, my choice, my placement, you know, all those sorts of nuances that i learned all the all the years of power station when are you gonna write a book well i mean you know i'm still i'm sitting here at my if you could see it i got my meyer my little meyer hm1s and my stacks of lift drives and you know pro tools is pro tools i'm it's you know it's convenient is it is it the best format no it's convenient yeah it's easy been uh treating logic like it was a tape deck since I started over on that format in 2005. But uh, yeah, all the mics and the preamps and all that beautiful stuff, so much better. I was a Mac guy. So Pro Tools has made much more sense for me. I think a yeah. lot of my PC friends are logic people. Oh, I'm on a Mac though. Are you on a Mac? I yeah. think back in the day it was all on PC though. Maybe, maybe they've gotten to figure out a way to get to Mac, but yeah. They're all it's, all, it's all the same stuff. It's all digital, you know, it's all. Yeah, it's waveforms. Pretty... And the thing about it is people start looking at waveforms. What I try to teach people is don't look at the waveform because you'll see mm-hmm. if you're looking at it. If you're watching it, you'll hear it. Put a put a blanket over, you know, <laughs> put a blanket over the screen or dim your screen so you don't see the waveform. So you're not because your eyes will tell you that you're hearing it, but you're actually maybe not hearing it the way you're supposed to be hearing it. Yeah. Yeah. And and sometimes I think it saved me too, <laughs> because everybody was having things 
professionally mastered now as we're all mastering and doing some of those things ourselves if you're not getting your speakers to respond to what's actually there and you're not hearing it it's good to see oh you're blowing things up on all these frequencies you better tame it you know yeah and that's where that dynamic some of the dynamic stuff plugins have been helpful because it's you can yeah. really, really tweak what you want you know you can you know it's, bounces over a certain threshold there's a lot of isotope i'm mastering a lot of, a lot of the programs and isotope you're good you found them helpful yeah there's some good tape emulators in there and there's some good dynamic processing in there too that helps you know some of them super i can you can eq but un-eq at the same time so it's kind of <laughs> <laughs> do you remember uh journeyman working with eric yep you got any cool stories or George moments? George, the interesting part was George was that he wanted to sing in the studio with the big speakers on. And that was something that I had not encountered prior to that. Really? He didn't want to use headphones? No headphones, not in the studio, and be in the control room with the spe- with the big speakers on, sitting right behind me, you know. Singing his harmony. Fine. <laughs> sure, George, whatever you want. <laughs> so Awesome. And oh the one good story I have about Steve or Yvonne was we were sitting there after one of the long, arduous, you know, a little wing for like four hours or something like that. It was three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> we were sitting there just at the, at the, probably drinking Jack Daniels or whatever. It was just he and I, and I, I didn't know anything really much about Stevie Ray. This is late, what, 83, I guess it was. He had just finished working with Bowie on Let's Dance which we also did at the power station. Yeah. And he, I said, you must have listened to Hendrix a lot as a, as a kid. And he just said, Rob, I'm going to tell you a story. You're not going to believe it, but it's true. So I said, go ahead. So <laughs> never listened to Hendrix ever as a kid. I was a Delta blues guy, Austin Delta blues guy. And I had a dream one day and Hendrix came to me in this dream and showed me how to play all these things. And I woke up in a cold sweat, picked up my guitar <laughs> but I couldn't or didn't think about playing before. And that's, he goes, that's how it started. That's wow. Fun. Yeah. That's, that's a good, fun. A good one. I know. I mean, sometimes they say there is no distance in the spirit realm and everything is up for grabs as far as information that you could ask almost anybody and answers would come if you just ask. It's pretty cool. Yeah. He, you know, it's, he said a change. I mean, he, I could barely play his guitar the way his, his action and his strings were so heavy. Yeah. Unbelievable that he could actually play it. I mean, it was literally, I think he had 13s, 13 to 60, something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And the action and, was, you know, it was, it was <laughs> <laughs> I, I always did the, the thing with the thinner strings and a thicker pick, get a fatter sound. <laughs> and it's much easier on your fingertips. I'm 11, 11 to. 56, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I like 11 for the like jazz guitars, uh, 10 for acoustics, and nine for bending. <laughs> it's all whatever you can make it sound good. I mean, it's all, you know, look, Clapton plays with three fingers. He doesn't even use his pinky. So I know. I had a student come in once. Uh, she was playing all this cool stuff, and she was only using three fingers, and her hands looked exactly like Clapton's. I said, You love Eric Clapton, don't you? She said, I adore him. <laughs> I love his playing. And she just had it down, even to the position of her hands and the three-finger technique. It's, 
still amazes me that he could do it. <laughs> to be honest. I know, I know. And that was a fun thing to learn from Graham Nash's book because he was saying that he and Paul McCartney and George all used the same guitar book. And up to then, I didn't even know that any of them had ever used a book, but it made sense. You know, it was Burt Whedon's Learn Guitar in a Day, you know, and I bought a copy off of Amazon just to see what it was. And it was like any other Alfred's or basic Mail Bay number one book, you know, this is how you hold your hands. This is how you hold the pick. These are the first beginning chords. This is how the string names go. So it's no wonder they knew so much and that they look so good. You know, a lot of people are watching folks on YouTube and stuff and their hand technique is out to lunch. And everybody just lets it go. Even at Berkeley, I'm always like, what about technique? What about position? What about getting a really good sound and not undermining yourself? Like they don't even know that that's a thing because they don't watch decent players play or they didn't use a book. It's, it's, it's interesting to see some, like, you know, I use my thumb a lot. To, to I like that my, too, actually. Yeah. And I got that from Matheny because Matheny uses his thumb quite a bit when he's doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Havens that I worked with this one time, his thumb between it's really long. His thumb is like that long. So yeah. He, <laughs> he could bar a guitar from this knuckle out. <laughs> yeah, when I used to see him on TV when I was a kid, I was like, what is up with that thumb? It's extra long. <laughs> his knuckle too is not it's just this knuckle out is weird. It was just freaky. Wow. Wow. Normal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Was um, Gary Burton's reunion album recorded on two-inch tape or ADATs? Uh, no, no ADATs. We didn't have ADATs at Power Station. It was We had 3324s at first and 3348s. We had some Atari. God, I can't remember the model number. There were 32 tracks. Oh, yeah. Um, they were kind of like the Mitsubishi. I guess they were kind of right. format. It was a PD format, I believe, is what they called it. I remember those. Uh, we never had ADATs at all in the studio. That was something that was, you know. That was smart. Well below our, well below our threshold. I mean, they, they said it was the industry standard, but not at Power Station. <laughs> you know, it elevated up to the 3348s, which were the, you know, 48-track Sonys that were high. They were 24-bit, so, mm. you know, they were the HRs. Oh. You got to get two of them, and you could sort of edit between the two so I didn't have to cut the tape anymore. I could just sort of offset, oh, move things around and stuff like that. So, Oh, sweet. Yeah. Now, you were uh, talking about uh, building a, a studio for a Buena Vista guy? Yeah, I'm hoping to still. I'm still talking to him about it. He's a... He still hasn't done it? He still hasn't done it yet, but... Wow. I'm pushing him to do it. It's important that we get another, you know, residential studio that actually, you know, I can train the staff and then just let them run their you know, do their thing. Yeah. But I was asking you a little earlier, what about a book? Maybe you can get some of these beautiful. All my free time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it probably could happen this way, right? People just talk to you for hours and hours and then culminate all that stuff. I've had people ask me about it, but I don't know. I hate talking about myself. It's not really an interesting subject to me. <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> well, how you learn, how you hear, and the magic you create with the same tools that we all use, that's something to really pass you know, along. I'm proud of what I did. You know, I'm proud of, you know, I've got a wall full of Grammy citations from the, the Academy for my work. And 
you know, gold and platinum records. They all, they're nice and everything, but, and I'm proud of it, you know, mm-hmm. but I think the, the business changed when it became the home studio thing and everybody thought they were an engineer and everybody thought they were a producer. And mm-hmm. I felt it was time I accomplished all I needed to do there. And so I still do it for free. I produce people's records for free. I don't charge any money. And I, I find an artist I like and I, you know, I do get involved. I, yeah, get involved and, you know, I can do most of it right here in my bedroom for crying out loud. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's the nice, convenient thing about it for all of us. Yep. I've got some old 87As that are still kicking around that sound pretty good on pretty much everything. Oh, sweet. Yeah. The old ones used to be able to put two batteries in them. So yeah. You got phantom power. we've got you covered (laughs) what did you do over the years while you were learning if you got frustrated or how did you stay inspired with all the maybe you just kept so busy you didn't have time to fret I think the biggest lesson I learned was that it's not my record you know like I, I had to learn how to not be upset or deterred by someone wanting something different than I was giving them Mm. You know, my job is to take it to where I hear it, but my real job is to make the client happy with what they're getting. And, mm. You know, knocking that chip off my shoulder when I was younger was probably the biggest lesson I learned. You know, so, wow. you know, do do all the skills that I have to make the client and the artist feel good about their music. It is their music. So, yeah. Tricky though, uh, when when you know it's against your better judgment and yep. they don't care. But at the same time, they're paying me to do. They're paying me to make them happy. So you know, right? Sacrifices you make that you normally wouldn't do, but you know that's my job. That's the job yeah. of any engineer or any any producer, really. Yeah, any kind of service. You know, you have to. You have to. You know. Your your job is to do your job, but also to make your client happy. And if that means doing something that you no, wouldn't normally do or having something louder than you wouldn't normally have it, then, you know, it's their record. Yeah. That was my big lesson. That's huge. Really huge. My brothers are still talking about that as graphic artists. They're like, oh. <laughs> It's not just it's it's not that what I was doing was bad. It was just different than what they wanted, and yeah. you know, it's okay to be different. You know, here to be different. I that poster on my wall when I was a kid. Yeah, as long as the quality isn't. Too no, far of course I would never let you know get that far down. <laughs> Take my name off of there. Oh. <laughs> uh, how did you? Um, well, you must have always been in love with the Grateful Dead, but. Dark Star Orchestra. They just asked me to play with them. And I was still doing records at the time because I was still independent. I was, so every time I was between an album, I would go out and do a tour. Wow. You know, and then I think Ricky Martin's the one that really killed me because of the politics of everything with Tommy Mottola and, you know, and Sony and the whole nine yards was just. Uh, you know, I was, I felt like I was, for the first time in my life, I was doing it for the money. Hmm. I believe that people would pay me to do this stuff for years. Like, you're going to pay me. <laughs> like, I'll do it for free, you know? Yeah. 
but I kind of felt dirty and I didn't like the politics of it. I didn't like where it was going in this band mm. balls to play with them. So I've been doing that now for 20, gosh, 24 years, which is a long time. I know. It's been going for 25. I started in 99. So wow. doing records into 2000, I think one of Pat's records I was doing in late 2001. That's when I, after that record, I joined full time. Wow. And then you started re- restoring the Betty boards. I started restoring st- restoring tapes and transferring tapes. And of course, I can't get my hands off tapes. Man, I love tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I know. Yeah. I missed my half-inch eight-track. Uh, I had a Tascam 38 for a bunch of years. So just a couple of years ago, I got a one-inch MS-16 just to have fun with it again. Even just the sounds of it, it just feels like home. <laughs> Well, it was interesting because I had to I had to sort of learn how to bake tapes, which was you know a lot of the fifty six back in the day. You know the formulation of that particular tape, the back got really gooey and sticky, and it would to the other side. So if you didn't sort of dry it out and reformulate it, it would you you never there was no way to repair it. So I was experimenting with blank four fifty six that I had a couple of that were of that same gooey quality mm. i hunt mushrooms here in the mountains of colorado in the summertime so i have this de- this mushroom dehydrator that has these <laughs> <laughs> and i can get it down to 110 degrees which is where you want to do it for baking the tapes you know so, oh, wow. so it was like 110 degrees for about six seven hours sometimes eight. Oh my god it packed in and then i was so- able to play it don't use your convection oven. Use it. No, 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 no. <laughs> like a brisket, nice and slow. <laughs> That's really funny. Oh, what about um, the developing of talent? How did that come about? You know, you find a good writer. It's like it's all writing. I think for me, it was all about the writing. Yeah. You know, if you find somebody that writes good songs and good lyrics, you know, you can figure out a way to, to work with that and make that work. That's kind of what I did. The last record I did, I sat a guy on my couch and I had him play everything, sing everything live and play everything live. I used most of the vocals that he sung at the time. And Oh, cool. Leakage is your friend. People are so afraid of leakage, but leakage doesn't have to be your enemy. Leakage can be your friend as well. Yeah. And I if think, you know what you know. <laughs> and also, perfection is not what I was looking for. So if, if the emotional content was in the performance, yeah, there was, you know, something that was, you know, maybe a squeak in a guitar note or a vocal that could have been more in tune. But if the, if the performance and the, and the emotion, like we talked about, was there, that's totally superseded perfection in my book. So Absolutely. That's what I always try to teach people is that, you know, perfection, no one wants perfection. People want emotion. So if emotion means that it's not technically perfect, but you're getting it, you're feeling it, then by all means, that's the way you go. I know the first time one of my students showed me all kinds of things with auto-tune and Melodyne and all these things, he just took one of my vocals and messed with it and stuff. It took out everything that was me. I don't like this at all. (laughs) I don't think I'll ever use this. (laughs) I'd rather re-sing it, you know. (laughs) It's a hole, which is Courtney Love's band back when I was still in New York City. That was Mm. 
it was Michael Beinhorn was the producer on it. And I was one of the guys in New York that was known to be really good with digital stuff and analog stuff and tying machines together Hmm. along with all the other things. And so we were recording Courtney's vocals and we'd, we, I'd have to spin them off and send them to this guy who is before like pro tools and anything like that before I was, and he would sit there on his computer and he would tune her vocal and he'd send it back and I'd have to put it back in to the analog tapes. And he tuned one too good. So we had to send it back and he had to detune it because she couldn't possibly sing that well in tune. So we had to send it back to him for him to detune it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so good. Of course. Yeah, I, I think everything's gone too far. Now, when you say produce, how much arranging are you doing versus actually producing? Both. I mean, produ- pro- production is arranging in my book. You know, it's it's you know, it's all of the all of the above. You know, and I mean, I think as an engineer, you're always a you're always somewhat of a producer. That's why Pat gave me associate producer credit on a bunch of the group records because of all the you know knowing that all the stuff that I was doing for him in the studio was invaluable. Wow. You're always, you're always producing in a way. Yeah. I think, you know, I also learned from Phil Ramone and, you know, I've learned from a lot of the, a lot of the great producers knew who to call for the gig and knew who to call for the particular job that they were looking for, whether it was bass player, this or that. And they just let it go, you know, that's, and, and sometimes that's, you know, that's the job of the producers just to know who, you know, pull the Rolodex out when we had those. And call that. Do it right. You don't have to say anything to them. They're just going to do it right. Exactly. Like a casting director. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and they just sit back and let it happen and give their feedback and, you know, and, it, was, it seemed fairly simple at the time. Yeah. Well, I always thought George Martin was a fantastic producer because he was such a great arranger. Well, I think he's, that was his strength. This was, was his, you know, he was able to, to really tailor all of that stuff into a format that really worked well for everybody. Yeah. You know, really, it's one thing I've been trying to teach my kid is that, you know, you know, getting too cute for your britches kind of thing, you know, like, yeah, you can do that, but, What's what's its purpose? Why why? You know, I'm always asking why. Like why why are yeah. you why are you what does this mean? Why is that there? Is it what's its purpose? You know? Mm-hmm. Show you that you can play those chords or that you can put in this, you know, this, you know, less is and more. If you can't anchor it to anything or explain its existence, it's like there for showing yeah. off and it's not supporting the song in any way. It's just show up, which means it's, it's, Get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Do you write your own songs as well? I do. I just can't write lyrics. So I've got like so many instrumentals that are just sitting in Pro Tools somewhere. I just, lyric uh, lyrics have never been my forte. The English language was never my forte. So I struggle with that. You know, I'm somewhat dyslexic a little bit. And so things come out backwards sometimes. And Have you heard of, of free association or object writing? Oh, it's really cool. You could take a notebook and just scribble anything and fill pages of nonsense. Even if you're just writing down words independently with commas in between, they're not even full sentences or thoughts. And um, 
I could show you an example, I guess. Uh, but it's the fun, fun way of trying to get words started because it's so much easier for me to come up with lyrics as well. I mean, come up with music yeah. as well. It's easy. That's the easy part. Yeah. And, and you know, it's guitars always in your lap and you're feeling things and sounds and frequencies all match up. And it's just delicious to just move your fingers around and hear something that feels exactly right. You resonate with it to some degree and you just think, OK, this is cool. This is something. But then sometimes, like Paul Simon would say, you just oh, and, and you get attached to a vowel sound and then you say, OK, yeah, that word should be there now. That's a good vowel sound for there. And then you think, what, what rhymes with now? And what can I say that might involve that word? Or like, it, it's really putting together a puzzle in another way that isn't sonic, but is still in your ability since you speak the language, you know? I, I think I write better on the piano. Oh, okay. Even lyrically? Uh, I think just the piano makes more, it's, it makes a lot of sense, you know? I can't translate sure. Are oddly enough, like I can write on the, my writing's better when I'm writing on the piano than it is when I'm when I can't move that to a guitar because it's a whole different thing for some reason. I don't know. That's but the, having it all just sit there right in front of me, I don't know, makes whatever works. Like it doesn't matter. I mean, you're the musician is you. Yeah. So any instrument or tool or plug-in or microphone you want to use, it's you that's gonna come through, which is so great. But the, the the free association is allowing yourself to write the worst shit in America, and it doesn't matter what it is. And then when you go back later with a piano idea or a guitar idea, sometimes a phrase stands out or something comes into mind. And you go, that would be a cool title. And then all of a sudden a line pops in your head. You don't know why. And you just allow yourself to keep going. One of my students did that with single words separated by a comma. And I was thinking, what in the world are you doing? Like you didn't even put in actual sentences. And then I did the same thing because he read, I wanted everybody to read their free association. And then I wanted everybody to read the lyric they got out of it. And then I wanted everybody to write uh, the, uh, play the song that they wrote from it. And we were all so impressed that this guy wrote something from something as stupid as this. But then we all said, I can't wait to go home and do it. So back in April, it looked like of uh, 04, I wrote this blurb, which was nothing. And you just leave it. You don't even think anything's going to come of it. You don't care. But then in May, the next month, I'm playing in the backyard in this tuning with the capo there. And I love the little guitar idea I'm coming up with. And the first words I see, because I have a cold, are up here. And it said, uh, beyond talk. Oh, there it is. Beyond talk. So okay. I said, yeah, beyond talk, I'm tired and needing a change because we were going to be in between semesters and I just wanted to have a break. And then I saw behind, I saw star filled ceiling up here because I had those fake stars on my ceiling in the bedroom. And I said, beyond, behind lights where my star filled ceiling remains. And then I saw the word blueprint and I needed healing because I wasn't feeling good. And I said, delivers my eyes from this troubled haze because I was, you know, feeling out of it and stuff like that. And then I went, wait a minute. I have like a two syllable word happening here beyond behind 
What other two-syllable words that start with B can I think of? Beware, behave, believe, before. I'm seeing a pattern. So then I said, okay, start a sentence with beneath, start a sentence with between. I was outside. I went, okay, beneath clouds where a smile can surrender this frown. I mean, I tried to simplify it because, you know, I mean, there's George going, uh, I look at the floor and I notice it needs sweeping or I see it needs sweeping. It's like, it's not rocket science sometimes. Sometimes lyrics are this whole thing about what you're feeling inside that you're trying to pull out, what's happening around you, or yeah, the floor needs sweeping, but yeah, I'm going to go outside now, and now I'm under the moon, and how free does that feel? And somehow just pulling in all that life experience, and that's certainly all in you because of all the music you've done. But I'd love this song. It felt like I had channeled this song from George or something because it almost sounds like a George Harrison tune to me. You know, it was like, Beyond talk, I am tired and needing this change. Behind lights where my star-filled ceiling remains. And the blueprint for healing delivers my eyes from this troubled haze. And a lot of the other ones are just sentences, you know. But I'll go through when I have a guitar idea or a piano idea and just say, you know, what words have I got? What can I sing about? And literally, I'm just grabbing anything from a newspaper or something and a, a movie title and, and just stick it together and having the interest or the curiosity to say, maybe I can turn this into something. You know, like you remember when they used to have those 3D uh, paintings where you look at it, it just looks like an abstract mosaic of impressionism or something. And they'd say, no, let your eyes go out of focus and just let it happen, right? I remember. And all of a sudden you'd see an image. And the disappointing thing, there was nothing usually that interesting to see inside of them. Like this, you put faces of beetles inside them. And then it would have been really nice to, to <laughs> let your eyes go out of focus and zoom in on something. But what you're trying to do is say, I can do it. I can't do it. I can do it. I can't do it. And there's this, this little place. It's, it's like a, I always think of it as, as like a threshold. Somehow, like when I was 10 years old, I just started writing songs one day and I thought, I wonder if this will ever happen again because this is such a magical thing. You know, it just feels so different than real life. This is better than real life. I want to do this as often as I can and feel this again. And it's the same with then trying to stick with it when you're writing the tune. I would imagine you felt the similar thing when all of a sudden the mix is starting to drift and you're going, I'm losing it, I'm losing it, I need a break. And you bring it back. I, well, there was when I was mixing Song X, for instance. I think there was a song called "Endangered Species," which was about twenty something minutes long, and it was pretty hardcore for twenty minutes. And I'd have to take a walk around the block after each pass of, like, because your brain—I mean, it was just so much to take in that I needed to walk around the block. Took me 10 or 15 minutes. I'd come back in, sit down, and I'd run through it again and <laughs> work on it some more and then walk wow. around. And yeah, Endangered Species was a pretty pretty intense tune to try to try to mix. Not 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 simple. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What about more Eric and George stories? George, <laughs> you know, funny thing is when I was there was a guy that I don't think the record ever got released. I was working with Paul Carrick and this guy his name, his name was Greg Brown, but not the Greg Brown from Texas. This guy was from England. He was a slide player. Like slide. And George would come in and he'd just sit in the back of the control room and just sit there all day, just listening to this guy play slide. You know, it was like this beautiful 
you know, British slide players, some of the Hawaiian style in a way. It's like he really, mm. you know, George, he would just walk in the studio every day, goes out and cook them, which is not far from Henley, I think, where his house was. Yeah. Over every day and, you know, sit in the, sit in the room and, you know, chat away like it was no big deal. <laughs> you know, George Harrison. You know. Don't mind me, just George Harrison here. <laughs> At first he was, he was looking for a studio. He came into the studio to look for, he was looking for a studio to mix his live record from Japan, I think it was. Mm. So it was around that time period. I guess it would have been probably early 90s, something yes. like Exactly. And and he just never he just kept coming every day. He came into look, he came in to see the studio and he sat down and was watching what we were doing and you know, we were recording and and, and mixing and stuff like that. And he knew Paul Carrick and Peter Van Hook was the producer. He was the drummer in um, the Van Morrison's band for at least a decade. Wow. So he knew a lot, like a lot of the blokes as they called them over there. And so he, <laughs> he, he would just, uh, he, you know, each day he'd come in and he'd have some tea and he'd sit there for hours. I mean, every day, like he had obviously decided he was going to mix his record there and just wanted to come and hang out. But I think it was the slide player that, that made him really want to, uh, really want to come out. And this is the time that, that, um, I think he was on, it was right around the time that Virgin was going, getting weird, or one of those record labels over there was getting weird and going through changes and stuff like that. And I think he, this record just got caught up in that sort of mm. change and never got never got released. Should have, because it was great, great little record. That slide record never got released? Yeah, I got it on DAT somewhere, somewhere in storage. Oh, why didn't the artist want to put it out himself now that everything's changed? Good question. I'm not sure. I've tried searching for him every now and then, but all that comes up is this Greg Brown from Texas, this big Texas guy. Huh. But That's sad. I'll, t- I mean, I'll, I'll send it out. When I find it, I'll send it to you. I'll let you check it out. It's pretty cool. Because <laughs> I love George's slide playing. But if he was trying to get into some of the Hawaiian sound, I could see his interest in it, you know. He just like, he just, this, this guy was great. You know, he's just this very quiet, you know, English cat. And, you know, George really, really appreciated that kind of slide. Not, you know, so much the blues slide. It was bluesy, but it was just different, you know. And I think George, yeah, you know, and just enjoyed hanging. I think, you know, those guys were, you know, you got to think about it, being a Beatle. You know, he just couldn't go out and just hang, you know. He couldn't go to the local pub and 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 hang out. You know, this was a place for him to go that was safe and and he could still be around music and blah, 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 and chat and do all the other things. That's my Get out of the garden once in a while. <laughs> well, it's a Boston Terrier, by the way. Oh, cool. <laughs> Terrorizer. Do you, do you remember um, when you were recording that album for him, if um, he was in standard tuning or was he in different alternate tunings? Probably, in, probably both. Yeah. Um, the way... What what material slide might he been been using? Or he was using a. I use a brass slide because I like it. But he he was using a glass slide. Yeah, I like a medium weight glass on my third finger. Yeah, I use a brass on my pinky. Nice. Then I can change chords by. You still fret, yeah. I know. I tried all those different things. I've got a little video on slide. 
on YouTube because I tried the jet slide and the ring slides. And I was in a band that was doing solo Beatles tribute to all the solo Beatle albums instead of the Beatle years, even though I did the Beatle years for 13 years being George. And uh, I needed to like get the slide and play and put it back so that I could play other things. And so I found this thing that was uh, a holder and oh. you just put it right. And that was the easiest thing to do because it still gave me the sound I wanted with the level. Like I liked the height of the medium weight off those strings. And yeah, that was cool. Brass for me is that I could still play chords. I could pick, pick the slide up from the pinky and I could still do, you know, right. Some, some chords. Still three fingers working. Yeah. So cool. I love the sound. And, and, George started playing it in 1969, and I thought, that's a good sound. I want to do that, too. <laughs> that's when Guitar Player had the little ads in the back, you know, and it was like three different kinds of slides, you know, sent away for it. Mom, you got to write me a check. Here's the money. <laughs> so great. It's... What else? There's so much. I mean, what about Madonna and Like a Virgin and some of those tracks? Madonna was, she was an interesting sort. <laughs> was she really a drummer? They say she started out as a drummer. Did you ever hear her play? I never heard her play drums when I worked with her, but she, uh, you know, she was very particular. She knew what she wanted. She wasn't afraid to say it. And she wasn't afraid to, you know, speak her mind up. She was certainly not timid. Um, she's very professional, but, you know, like, but she was very, you know, when she put her foot down, you know, she put her foot down and it didn't matter what Nile Rogers said or, you know, it was. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was, you know, the original lyric, I don't believe, was getting touched for the very first time. Well, just it was not. It was a little more graphic than that. Mm. <laughs> but the record company was pretty sure it wasn't going to get played on the radio. that. <laughs> My sister was very young at the time, like maybe eight, and she was running around singing that song. And my mother was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> does she know what she's saying? <laughs> well, Madonna would say, she goes, if Michael Jackson, this was right on the heels of Thriller. So Thriller sold you know, 30 million records. He goes, if Michael Jackson can sell 30 million records, I can sell 30 million records. Yeah. And she had his uh, manager from the beginning. So she knew what she was after. She and she she was very she was you know she she was a pro. Yeah. Oh yeah. And she incredible did. business mind. Incredible business mind. Yeah. Yeah. She so was, when I was showing you those blurbs that mean nothing but trying to make it have sense, did any of that make yeah. you think you could possibly scribble some stuff and have fun with words yourself? I do read a lot of books. I I read. You know, I'm on airplanes a lot, so I read. That's the best. You know, I it's. Like I spend each day at least read a couple hours a day, so I can see myself doing that. Even yeah. with word and writing it down, you know, read out of whatever I'm reading, you know, instead of having to come pop into my head, I go, "Oh, that's a good word." That one oh yeah, when a little moment happens, the best thing to do is to harness it somehow, put it in your phone notes, or put it on a piece of paper where all of them end up, so you don't have to go looking for them. Because right. then, when the idea comes that you have a little bit of a initiative to want to see if any of these things fit together. Like James Taylor's always saying, he just puts all these little ideas together and just sees if any of them can play together. Will any of these fit, you know, because it doesn't always come out as a whole. I have a friend of mine where I go to a, a brewery and have lunch. It's usually a kombucha tea and then a beer. 
and we we call it our book club, and and she'll oh, wow. she'll actually have a piece of paper and she'll write down like phrases from the book, so she doesn't have to go back in and find them that she likes. Yes, it's a piece of paper and writes them down. So it's kind of kind of the same thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I do that with sounds. If there's a particular bass sound on an album that I want, if there's a particular effect or something I want to try or, oh, yeah, I want to remember to do the snaps in a song or put this kind of harmony vocal. I just make lists of things. So then when I go, this song needs something, what is it? It's like, oh, yeah, that woodblock thing. Where is that piece of thing that I was going to hit when I said I wanted to save it as a percussion? And then just try things, you know. And the cool thing is nobody's looking over your shoulder and nobody's expecting anything, you know, yeah. but I mean, right, right now I've, you know, I've, I've gone, I, I don't think I use any effects now on my guitar. It's all like both hands are where I get my tone from and where I get my sound from. And yeah, I don't, uh, I'm kind of digging it these days. I don't, you know, I have a, a you know, everybody's got these big pedal boards and all this stuff. It's like, they go, what do you use to get your sound? I'm like, that's right, right here. <laughs> it's exactly where it all starts. And, and the sand. Yeah, because, you know, you could pass around one acoustic guitar. That happened to me at a party once. Everybody said, let's play a song each. And they passed around the same guitar to 12 different people. And somebody said, you know, it sounded best in your hands than anybody else's. And I was a little embarrassed at first, you know, but it was like, if it's a nice instrument, I know how to get a good sound out of it. Right. Whereas even if, if it's a very expensive instrument, a novice wouldn't know how to get a good sound out of it, you know? Let's see if I have one of my, I play the, uh, the old Dunlop Jazz 2s. Oh, right. I have the uh, one and a half. The red ones. <clears throat> I have the purple ones, the, uh, the one and a half millimeter purple ones, light purple. <laughs> But, you know, Chet Atkins used to say that, right? He'd be playing along and somebody come by and say, wow, that guitar sounds amazing. And he says, does it? And he'd put it down in the stand and say, now, how does it sound? <laughs> it's like if I ask somebody to play my guitar because I want to hear what it sounds like out in the house, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense because it's not going to sound anything like I'm playing it. Exactly. Exactly. What about favorite authors then? Or favorite oh, books? What I kind of books do you read? I read a lot of fiction because I'm, I have enough reality around me at all times. That yeah. I try to get away from it and try to get, I don't know. I have, I have piles of hardcovers. I don't read anyone. I just look at the, the, the you know, New York Times bestseller list and sort of go from there. Knock them off. Yeah. And do yeah. you listen to books too? No. No, point, you don't do the audible thing? No, points to read. I've got enough audible in my world. I don't need to, I don't need to have that too. That's true. You're listening and using those ears enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, yeah. The, the thing about the lyrics is it's all up to you and anything works, you know. Yeah, I've written one one song. It's it's a it's dark. That's OK. You know, lyrically, it's dark and it, and it works. And, you know, but I, what I want to do is find somebody who's who's a, who's really good at writing lyrics and this hand them off all this music. Mm. Like like Jerry Garcia had Robert Hunter, you know, Jerry didn't write any lyrics, you know, right. Bob Weir had John Barlow who wrote yep. all his words. And so Elton had Bernie. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it's, yeah. not, it's not uncommon to have, you know, find somebody that can actually, you know, figure out a way. What's interesting too about lyrics and about interpretation is there's a great, the Grateful Dead have a, a song called The Music Never Stopped, which was a song that 
and Bob sure. Weir wrote. Um, it was originally handed to Robert Hunter to write lyrics for. And it, you can find it online. It's pretty interesting. It's called um, uh, Hollywood or something like that. Hollywood something. Hmm. And it, it's it has, it's the same music as the music never stopped, but completely wrong. And so he huh. took, he took it away and gave it to Barlow, who wrote the music never stopped. But it's a it's a it's a great way to sort of show how here's one piece of music, same piece of music that is interpreted by this writer and then interpreted by this writer. Oh wow! Yeah. It's, yeah, it's infinite. It's but it's Robert. You're talking about Robert Hunter, who's one of the you know written some of the <laughs> amazing lyrics that they just it was just terrible, it was so wrong for the for the song. So yeah. I'll play for people. I'll say here's the here's what a good you know even though you're a good writer and a good lyricist doesn't mean you're going to get it right at all. No, no. I mean you have to sort of give someone a glimpse of your heart or your head or your, you know, where you're coming from, where you want it to start or begin or end. I mean, you know, it's almost like a reference mix. It's like, and, and give, I think, someone, give someone a clue lyrically. <laughs> rough mixes. I would, per, I would purposely fuck up a rough mix, like mute stuff because evidently <laughs> most record companies are like, Hey, they really love the rough, you know, cause you're not thinking you're just out there, you know, making a, making a rough mix. And they've heard it more often, so they think that's it's, the one. It's, it's, it's called demoitis. It's like where it's like the, you know, it's what they hear. So it doesn't sound like what I've been listening to for the past two months. And so exactly. I always fuck it up. I muted everything for a second, then open it back up or mute, you know, just make something fucked up with it so it A couldn't be used. <laughs> and, be, <laughs> and they just wouldn't go, prefer just go with the rough. <laughs> and they wouldn't prefer it. <laughs> right. What do you remember about uh, recording the Secret Story album? Because I almost went on that tour with Pat. Oh, that was that, that was, was phenomenal that was, music. That was very difficult record, and it's actually it's an interesting story because we were mixing it up in Studio D, the power station, and Pat would take home. This is before CDs and stuff, but he would take home a cassette. Yes. And he'd come back in every day and he'd always want like the cymbals louder or the shakers louder. I'm like, are you sure the azimuth on the deck you're playing, you know, because he's playing it like <laughs> a no box. And, you know, if, as we know, if the azimuth isn't lined up properly, then there it goes. Then there goes your high end. <laughs> we got in this huge fight and I, I'm like, fuck it, I quit. So I started, oh my goodness. Start walking to the elevator and he catches me before the elevator and goes, all right, all right, all right. I'll I said, you can't judge, you can't judge a song mix on a cassette. <laughs> you just, you know, unless you're sitting there tweaking the asthma to get the top, you know, all of the, all of the frequencies there. I'm not going to listen, yeah. I'm not going to listen to you tell, tell me that the symbols need louder because they don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's so really I think funny. Story was a hard one. It was a, it was a very, I mean, it was, it was complex. All those records were complex. Tons of music on him. Did you also record the London Symphony Orchestra for him? I did not. I did not. That was done by the guy out there. And then they for the orchestra. And then they those tapes came back to me in New York. And you I folded it back in. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, those records, the Pat Metheny group records were by far the most difficult records I ever did. Do you remember how some of the Secret Story stuff was 
first started? Like what were some of the basic tracks? I mean, he would start, you know, he had a, he had a sync clavier for years. And so he would, yeah. he would write a lot of his basic sort of sequences, he'd call them on a sync clavier. And so we would sort of translate and redo a lot of those sync clavier parts with real people. Mm. And some of the sync clavier parts stayed. He would do all the whole band that way. He would do, he would get, he would get a not, I mean, obviously not, this was before you could do drums and things like that. This is, you know, he would have the basis of, you know, the basis of what he was going to be doing. And we, he'd bring that into the studio. And most of the time we just slave the sync with, with time code. Wow. And, uh, and then dump it. Sometimes it never got done. That's why some of those tapes will never be able to be sort of, looked out over again because we didn't dump everything to tape. A lot of stuff was slaved when we were mixing. So yeah. We weren't thinking we weren't thinking that far ahead that technology was going to change. I know my first album on the half inch eight track had a whole bunch of virtual tracks of synths and drum machines all slaved to a sync tone. So yeah. there's only seven tr- tracks of analog things with sync tone. Well, and I knew, nobody good. ever told me to dump all the virtual onto clean tape. So I'd have it years later to put so back together. Tone, of course, bleed, bled over to track track eight, bled to track seven. So track seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about those vocalists, the the ones with the... Did those folks actually come into the uh, studio? Well, was that sampled somewhere else, recorded somewhere else? No, they were... we. We would take, Pat was very good at manipulating things with his, you know, he was very good at, you know, doing these multiple hand things to get things to, to do. Well, we were, we were, we were taking. On his synclavier? Yeah. So we would, we would find samples. I think those samples came from, there were African samples, some kind of sample or somewhere. And he would just manipulate them and into that and created that particular sound. Wow. Yeah. Because the, the, those uh, those folks have other albums where it sounds like that, yeah. too. Yeah, and Pedro Aznar played a song, I should say, sung on a lot of the records. And he had uh, Mark Ledford and David Blamires. Um, yeah. Sung on a bunch of them. Um, Richard Bona. Bulgarian Voices or something. I have a couple of albums of theirs upstairs. Yes. Yeah, can't remember the name. I can't either. I thought, I thought, I thought he had actually used those folks. I wow. I believe so. I think we used some of the recordings that he sort of manipulated. Okay. That's interesting. Very interesting. We didn't uh, we didn't actually have them in the studio recording them. Yeah, I love at least not that I can remember. And <laughs> that doesn't mean <laughs> they weren't there. I, I love that he could produce things and tinker things and play with sounds and manipulate sounds and work with synths or play with his guitar in different ways or trigger trumpet sounds. All those things that he would do were so interesting. I mean, oh, they still he, was the, he was the first guy to do it, really. I mean, he yeah. could scale. He was, you know, in a way he invented that whole, that whole thing. You know, well, his whole... brother was a trumpet player and he started on trumpet. Then he's like, no, nah, I really want guitar. Yeah. <laughs> He's good though, Pat. I mean, Pat, it's funny, Pat never even knew I played guitar. <laughs> and then one day I had a gig at the Wetlands and he came down to the Wetlands and he's just standing there in the middle and his jaws just going like this. And the next day we were going to the studio, he goes, it all makes sense now. Because it all makes sense. I said, well, what? <laughs> I said, what makes sense? He goes, well, you can do what you do. It all makes sense now. 
Absolutely. If you don't really know how to create sounds or to feel the sound as you're creating it, I don't see how you could learn how to capture it. Yeah, he yeah he was he was he was just like I get it now because I never knew why you could, how you could do what you do because now it all makes sense. <laughs> wow! And you were just at the power station and got assigned to work with him. Like when you yep. guys first met, it was yep. just like here's your engineer. I was how you do twenty one and he was twenty five. Wow! And. And it was it was a long run. It was twenty years at least, you know. Of you know, phenomenal. We have to do this to you. <laughs> no, we just have to standing. Oh, my friend, standing. Oh, I'm proud of some of those records. It's I don't think many people could have done what I did with them. I mean, I don't think so either. So tell me, what were those things you did? <laughs> just, just the the enormity of of the complexity of of layers and layers yes. of things. And you mean a, a gigantic mix, lots of tracks to deal yeah, with. Yeah, I've got a hundred tracks, you know. Yeah. That and, was really different back then. And you've got to hear all you know, Pat wants to hear every little bit of every little track. Yeah. And he knows everything that's in there that's supposed everything to be there. there. You know. Yeah. So it was being able to to do all that and then technically to be able to, you know, hook up anything you wanted to hook up and do whatever he needed to do and you know mixing was mixing you know it's just we and just became a team for a very long time how many assistants did you have to help get all that stuff ready and I, mean, I, I, I did i mean once i left staff at power station which would have been 89 or 90 then pat followed me over we went uh did some one or two records at the hit factory, the mm. new factory which is a, like a block away and then we did a lot of stuff at Right Track. So we kind of bounced around. So I had a lot of different assistants, a lot of different, different, uh, sure. different places. Um, didn't have one specific one at Power Station that worked with me all the time. It was kind of like whoever was assigned to me at that particular time was, because someone might have been on, you know, we had 24-7 studio. So you had six sessions a day unless you were blocked out. So it's, wow. there was- and that would block out, no? We would block out because we our studio was all great. Everything you know, Lyle would have his whole room with all his shit and the drums and have you know. Yeah, yeah. you don't want to break that down every day. God, no, (laughs) no, we don't want to break it down every day. (laughs) No. Do you have any kind of mixer at your house now? Uh, no, I did all. I do it all in the box, as I call it. Yeah, I mix it all in the box. I've I've toyed with you know getting a you know. 12 faders on a, you know, know, it's just, I can. Controller, not an analog. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to go large scale analog, you know, like I'm like, I'll just take pro tools and they have it coming through two faders. Like I would have every channel coming into the console. Yeah. I would do it all. I would just have the pro tools be the tape machine. Right. Right now pro tools is, you know, everything. It's your whole, you know, your whole world. Mine? Mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Logic is pretty much my my whole world. But like Leanne Unger is a friend of mine, and she she was so cool that she doesn't own much of any gear. She just has a couple of few vintage microphones, and she's saving her money. Very smart person. <laughs> I indulge myself in all my interests and passions and, you know, look for tools to help me create the, the songs I want to 
make happen because they're not going to happen any other way, you know? No, and it's the technology keeps changing. You know, it's it's you know, I don't know what's you know, everything's on everything right now that I have on Pro Tools, I keep thinking what I should probably dump all those files off just to wave files to put somewhere to put in another format once Pro Tools is done. But I think Pro Tools is here for a little while anyway. Yeah. And it almost seems like some major studios are on the way back. Do you think? You know, I don't know. I think so. Because I think it's definitely going to hit the wall when people realize they really can't do what real engineers like you do. No. And, and if you I, really make. Yeah, I can only do so much here. You know, if I'm recording drums and stuff, I've got to go somewhere to do that. I'm not obviously doing it in my house, but. Yeah. I can do everything. You, else. you, you could. I could. <laughs> I have. But it's not. Yeah. I have, you know, drums at my house at all the different houses I've had, but, you know. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier if I don't have to run cables from one room to another. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's already, it's already done for me. Makes That's it true, easier. and and the room sounds good, and all those things. Yep. My gosh. Uh, favorite console? Neve. The yeah. the eighty six with eighty sixty eight eighty eighty eight. You know, eighty fifty eight. I mean, any of those any of those yeah. old Neve consoles are kind of where I'm. Did you like the VR? I have two channels of a VR. I did not like the VR. That was my least favorite. <laughs> my least favorite. That's funny. I have the Portico. I have the MB2, MBP Master Bus Processor. And I have uh, two 1073 modules, well, 10, I guess. 1073s, are, those are all right. Those are nice. Yeah. <laughs> but you like the 8088s and 58s and... Well, the 8080 is just basically a, a 40 channel to 8068. So, you know, Power Station had one custom built because we had 8068s, but they're only 32 faders. Hmm. faders. So they built us an 8088, which is basically an 8068 with eight more faders. Hmm. Same console, same thing. What's your favorite vocal mic for you? If I had my choice, if I had my, my favorite vocal mics in general would be for, for your voice, like if you were performing yeah, versus recording. I would. I mean, I use a Neumann on stage, KMS one hundred five. Oh, live. But in the studio, I would do not for me specifically, but my favorite vocal mics would be a C ten. Hmm. Um. C ten is, you know, to, you know, it depends on how many microns the diaphragm is. You know, if it's like if it's three or four where they just look at it and it pops, probably not. Maybe seven microns would be good. <laughs> ELM 451, you know, the there was just some, I don't know. This everybody, Everybody's voice is different, you know? Yeah. Some people needed a darker mic. Some people needed, you know, the 47s tubes weren't my favorites. You know, the 49s, certainly not my favorites. Really? How come? I don't know. I used 49s for doing orchestras. They were, they were great. Put them on a tree, put three on a tree, call it a day. <laughs> Left, right, and center? Left, right, and center, yep. And then I used a lot of MS, you know, techniques sometimes, recording horns in the studios just to get the feel of the horns in the room. Hmm. Which is something most people don't do anymore. Did you ever do much of ORTF? No. I have I to look up even what that is. I learned about it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. That, that I have. <laughs> when you find out, let me know. <laughs> Each man. 
it's so hard to know. You know so much stuff. Yeah, it's like, where do you go? What do you ask? Well, it's just it's it's just funny. It's people just don't understand. You know, and I, I I tell my young kids like when they're miking everything and they're close miking everything. I said, put your ear down there and have them hit the drum. Tell, tell yeah. me what it sounds like. So John Bonham was was realized that my drums don't sound right when they're close mic'd. So mm-hmm. he he would the reason they got the sort of big sound was they left the door open to to Robert Plant's hallway where his vocal mic was on and Bonham was playing. It's like, whoa, what's that? And so every time after that, John Bonham would stand up at his drum kit and if he could hit any microphone with his drumstick, he'd just keep smashing it until someone came out and moved it out of his... Backed it up. (laughs) out Out of range. Well, it makes sense. I mean, sometimes I have a a closer mic for the the beater head of the kick, but I want to put one back several feet because these gigantic sound waves are going right by the mic, right? You know, so yeah, they would do that with Paul's bass too. Just set up a mic. Yeah, I mean, feet away. You don't, you know, you don't, you don't listen to right next. Like people put a. We'll put a microphone right on a say a guitar speaker. They put it right on the voice coil or the center. I'm like, well, you gotta realize that's the tweeter of the speaker. And then as you go out, <laughs> that's the woofer. So <laughs> you want it bright, you put it right over the tweeter. If you want it not so bright, you move it or move it back. And I always mic the back of the cabinet if it's an open cabinet. Yeah, so I like the sound. And I'll put this one out of phase. And the tones from the back are pretty cool too. Nice. I like miking my upright piano low in the back too. It seems warmer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I, I noticed that I love that with microphones, how you can record off axis. So I'll move my acoustic guitar around a mic if I'm standing and then just see what sound sounds best as I'm recording. So I don't have to use EQ and things. I'm just trying to get a blend with the tracks that are already there. Smart. Smart and, you know, when... Pat was looking for the rhythm guitarist to go out on the road f- to do the Secret Story tour. He asked the uh, people auditioning to send in a cassette playing along with one of his songs. And I chose It's For You. <laughs> and it had a lot of beautiful voicings in it and a ton of rhythm guitar. Like people think of Pat just as a lead player. He, but He's a great rhythm player. He grooves up a storm. So it was an important part. And um when I sent in the recording, I did just that. I moved my acoustic guitar around a mic and got mine to sound like his. It was your sound probably because you had recorded it and then put it in that way. And my keyboard player said, that sounds too good. Normally, if somebody's screening these for him, they're not even going to know you're on here. Like you've got to give them an actual serious mix. So I took my guitar and put it from center to the right on the cassette on the back and then put his album from center to the left so that somebody screening it could be alerted to the fact that I was really playing those exact voicings, trying my best to do his exact rhythm and to make it sound good because I love blending, you know, and um, he loved it, came down to him uh choosing two people, me and this other guy who had touring experience, and he chose the guy with the touring experience. But then I was supposed to go to Europe with him. And uh, I put that recording of the exact uh, audition on, on my YouTube channel because my students need to hear that it's important to listen. It's important to match. It's important to do things 
similar if you're trying to join an existing band or you're trying to reproduce hits that everybody recognizes, they're going to kind of want the guitar player to do what was on the record. You have to ask, you have to communicate and find out, do you want me to do my own thing? And do you want me to do what's already there? You know, those are cool skills. So yeah, he, he got a kick out of that. And then he spent two hours with me and Steve Rodby at my house in Newton when I lived in Newton, just playing for two hours. <laughs> you think you can get away from Berkeley? Yeah, that, that could be right. <laughs> I'd do the tour, sure. <laughs> it's been great talking to you. And we'll do it again. We want to do it again. I got some more stuff for any time. Oh, thank you so much. I would love to do it again. You're so cool. Anytime, my friend. Anytime. Thank and, you so uh, much, Rob. If your kids ever, if students have any questions, feel free to toss them out or throw them in a Zoom. It's all good. Yeah, you got to come to Berkeley again. I'm sure all those folks in the MPE would love to see you again. Yeah, I got a tour last oh, a year or two ago. I got a nice big tour of the whole facility. It's pretty impressive. Have you seen the new power station since Berkeley took it over? No, I haven't. I'd like to get back there one day since it's my old stuff. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen it yet. Well, maybe next time I'm in New York and you are, we'll go together. <laughs> what were you in Boston recently doing? I was playing at the Wang Theater with my band. <laughs> I missed it. I had no idea. I should have asked. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful theater, by the way. Gorgeous. It is. Yeah, I've seen James there and Carly. and <laughs> Gorgeous theater. So we played there on Thursday night. Was it Thursday night? Friday night? God, I can't remember now. Bravo. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll talk soon. Okay. Take care. Thank you so much. You got us. Ciao. Ciao. Rob Eaton. Listen to his work. Learn. There is so much there. Follow him on Instagram. He's Eaton Rob. And I'm El Pass Guitar. And this is Creative Conversations with Lauren Passarelli. And I am so thankful to you, Rob Eaton. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. Everybody, go to your studio and make stuff. 